What in an ideal world I would like to do and that is to look at you as a person, not as the condition and see what is going on there and how can I support you and how can we work together because sometimes there's this lack of support that is most frustrating. Hello and welcome to On Visibility, an intersectional podcast dedicated to making invisible illnesses visible. We're your hosts, Carmen Rose, Bernadette, and Shruti. Each week, we dig deeper into migraine and its comorbidities to help you on your own path of healing. Thank you for being here with us and let's meet guests. We have Heba Hani with us today, a Canadian registered pharmacist. Heba founded the Migraine Pharmacist to provide clinical virtual care for patients, supplementing them with individualized care plans. She helps organizations design migraine training programs for pharmacists. Heba hosts webinars for Migraine Canada, which is another excellent resource, especially for my fellow Canadians. She is very passionate about patient care. I should know since she was the first and only person to help me back in 2020 when I was struggling and I was new to Canada. Hello, Heba. Thank you for joining us today. I enjoy seeing you and talking to you and it's such a cool uh, start of the day um, <laughs> and a good cup of coffee with all of you. Can you tell us more about the mission behind the Migraine Pharmacist, why you founded it, and how you're using migraine education to help more pharmacists become literate in migraine treatment and care? If you just walk into a pharmacy and you ask a question, the odds are the pharmacist is going to be able to answer that question. Really, the first one you can see if you have a question. First, because they are very close to you. Second, you don't need an appointment. This means that in, in a condition like migraine, we're not talking about you know acute uh, patients that are hospitalized that have access to a, a group of healthcare professionals. They are in the community. And pharmacists are really willing to do more. Over the past few years, pharmacists have been viewed as, you know, they you just give them the prescription, they give you the medication, you go home. That's not how pharmacists are. I became a pharmacist because my grandmother lived across from a pharmacist and she told me, oh, I wish you would, when you grow up, you would be like this pharmacist. Because if a doctor gave her a prescription, she would never take it before asking her pharmacist for her wow. opinion. And she lived in another country. So when I went to visit, she would take me to see this pharmacist and she's more supportive than just giving her the prescription. So for me, that's what a pharmacist is. So when I started working with people living with migraine, I saw the frustration and I saw the lack of access for migraine. Uh, family doctors are not as accessible and especially the past few years, we've had a huge disaster for people living with migraine because they're not seen as an emergency. They're not seen as a priority. And because of that remote access that there's more and more doctors not seeing patients. Pharmacists are the only people who continue to see people living with migraine in person. We continue to see them and have that link to them. And when I started doing this, I saw the gap, but I also saw the, how many pharmacists are keen to do more. They, they don't want to do something like count pills. In North America, you first have to do a degree in science and then go into pharmacy. 
we're talking about seven to eight years of education that are behind that pharmacist standing in the pharmacy. They want to do more and they want to do patient care. And this is where the migraine pharmacist came from. It came from the idea that number one, I want to support more people living with migraine, but also empower pharmacists to do more for people living with migraine. When I started training pharmacists, it was very interesting for me to see that they were saying, oh, I now see more patients with migraine. And I'm like, mm, they were always there, but they were not yes. visible. So when you provide education, when you provide knowledge, there, there's more confidence to approach someone living with migraine with solutions. And you see them more clearly instead of seeing someone who's coming for, you know, acetaminophen or, or ibuprofen or something over the counter and coming just to pay for it. You start to see the person more than just, you know, transaction. That's amazing. I can relate to it because in India, people rarely ever go to the doctor. They first go to their pharmacy and they say, I'm not able to sleep or, you know, I have this tummy ache. Can you give me something? It's a pharmacist who gives them over-the-counter medication. And we have a lot of it. And it makes a huge difference, especially for people who can't even afford to see doctors back there. And here, I really appreciate my pharmacist because even before I go, they have all these notes made on my bag in which they put my medications. And then when I go, they pretty much talk about it. They say, okay, this is the second time that you are changing medication for this. Can you tell me a little bit about what side effects you experienced? And give me like a rundown on what to expect with the new medication, whether it's interacting with, you know, the other medication that I'm taking. It's really helpful to have that connect and talk to them. In fact, yesterday he spoke to me for half an hour and it blew me away how much time you spent with me the first time I spoke to you. For those who don't know, Heba is the only person who helped me when I was struggling back in 2020. When I was new to Canada, I couldn't see a doctor and my migraine was just out of control. So I really appreciate the time that, that you spent and how much I got out of it because you gave me the talking points for my consults. I was able to explore different medications and you know options with my doctor, thanks to you. I think options is very, very important for people living with migraine. You will not believe the number of people who come to the consult and say, my doctors told me there's nothing else they can do for me. And then I show them the program that I ran I share my screen and I show them what the treatment options are. And they go like, what? I've only tried three. And you can mm -hmm. go through that list. And these are the ones that are, you know, in the guidelines. We're not talking about off-label that are also a huge number that also can help, especially if you have comorbidities. If you have more than one condition, there's always the chance that I will be able to find something that will help you with both conditions or not fix one thing and, and damage the other thing. That is something I see a lot of my patients say, yeah, well, I didn't know I have so many options. The doctor said there's nothing left. Remember that uh, family physicians see all conditions, right? Mm -hmm. Migraine and headache have never been a priority in the healthcare system. And that's what we're trying to change today. We're trying to say this is a condition that hits 12 to 15% of the population, one of every five households. And that's not even new. Self-reported was 12 to 15. A condition that's underdiagnosed, undertreated, undermanaged. Mm -hmm. The, the number of people also who come in and say, yeah, my family tells me to drink more water. Exactly. And go, yeah, that's, that's good. But 
all humans need to drink water. It's not only <laughs> And I was looking at a study the other day and it said the real value of how much water they've seen and researched that you need four liters. Usually we say drink two liters. And we're telling people living with migraine, drink four liters to see possible benefit. How is it possible for someone every day to drink four liters of water? It's not good either, right? It's not good to drink too much water either. Yeah, can you be like overhydrated? You can actually have your electrolytes might get out of whack because Mm. of of that. But the idea is if you want to tell people to do something that will help them, it needs to be achievable. Uh, Four liters um, (laughs) is a lot. We're we're saying that... uh, someone needs to have two liters, just make sure that you maintain that two liters. And if you can do more, you can do more. But it's not going to cure your migraine. You're not going to walk, you know, wake up the next day and say, wow, that was like, I drank four liters, so I'm going to be migraine free. These are things that can help, but they're not going to treat the condition. The condition cannot be treated, can only be managed we haven't found a medication that you will wake up like an antibiotic and all that bacteria is gone. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And for our U.S. listeners, four liters is 135 ounces. I think it's 12 oh cups God. of water or something. <laughs> yeah. Is it? What? I just like had to, yeah. That's enough. You can't leave the house if you're on that, that, on that diet. You just have to stay home. <laughs> how can you go on, a, on the subway? How can you go? <laughs> No, I couldn't. I would have to get like adult diapers. Exactly. <laughs> I, that. I was like, okay, I'm gonna tell people that this is what I saw right. in research, but I'm not going to ask someone who drinks that in capsule. Your perspective on pharmacy is so refreshing. Um, and I understand mm-hmm. that like living in New York, there's just so many people and, you know, a lot of places don't have enough staff, the demand that they're dealing with. But like, I don't remember the last time my pharmacist consulted me. And I know that like, especially when I, when I start a new medication, I have a good connection with my psychiatrist and other doctors that prescribe these medications. So I feel like I get good information from them. And then I do my own research and obviously read the, what comes with it. But whenever it's like, you know, do a consult that somebody else will come over and do a couple of clicks and then walk away and that's it. And like, mm. luckily I just like, again, my, I really like my psychiatrist and she does really good research for me on my different medications and stuff. But I hear you and I'm like, I, I've never experienced that. Like, and you're not alone because for me, I had one podcast then a couple of years ago and someone said maybe in Canada, but in the U S the pharmacist just looks down, never even raises their eyes because they don't want to maintain eye contact with me because then they will have to talk to me. Yeah, that's what happens in New York. Realize that, but that's exactly what happens. Yeah, they don't ever look you in the eye. Then it's not the right pharmacist for you. And for me, yeah. I I worked in a big chain in Canada, and they were giving me a lot of work to do, and they were not giving me enough stuff, mm-hmm. and people were angrier. I had people coming and saying, "Why is it? Why is it taking so long? You just slap a label," and I'm like. If it was as easy Mm. as slapping a label, they wouldn't need me to go through all this education. Right. Like that Mm -hmm. label comes after I've checked everything. I've checked drug drug interaction. I've checked the dose. You would not believe the number of people who still write me a prescription. I cannot tell what that is. I cannot. The number of physicians who've sent me prescriptions with the wrong medication, wrong medication. And then you go and you ask the patient, so what are you getting this for? 
and they would tell you and you go like, no, that's, that's not it. That's a heart medication and you're looking for an antibiotic or something like that. So you have to go back to the doctor, confirm with them, explain to them that this is, I had a patient that got the prescription for someone else, but their name was on the prescription, the medication. It was for a totally different person, but the doctor put another another patient's name there. If I hadn't talked to that patient, if I had just handed them that prescription and I didn't double check, I look at their history. Okay, why are you getting this? Has something changed? So you're in the wrong place if your pharmacist will not, you know, will not say hi, if they don't know you by name. It's like the, mm-hmm. the, the cafe, like the cheers kind of, right? If they don't beat you mm-hmm. up, that might not be the right pharmacy for you. And we need to push for better care in pharmacy. These pharmacists are pushed beyond what is yeah. possible. And if you look today, this week yeah. in the States, I think they've reduced hours in CVS and Walgreens because they cannot find pharmacists. So either you find someone who's independent. So that's what I did for me. I can't change the corporate I was working for. I found an independent. I found a little pharmacy that had less people. And I started to know them. And now I do more migraine pharmacy. I don't go to the pharmacy as much. And when I go there, they come and they hunk me. And they're like, where have you ditched us? And I go like, no. And then, you know, you've done something. I'm, I'm walking around with this old brooch because I had a patient who came. She's an immigrant. She's possibly 80 something. And she said, 50 years ago, when I came to Canada, I brought this with me. And it's a brooch she brought from her home country and she said i want you to have it because you know i'm old i need you to have something that is mine and i was like i can't accept this and she's like no it's Uh, it's me to say thank you for taking care of me all the all this time you're my family this is the pharmacist Uh, i need to find i find an independent that's number one number two mm -hmm. you don't have an independent close by you don't have access to an independent build a relationship or human it's like having your friend is the pharmacist like make them your friend Mm -hmm. Uh, so do small acts of building that relationship you know if they would not take the first step you take the first step go talk to them say you know i would like to talk to the pharmacist have a question or if they did something good tell them they did something good it doesn't need to be a gift card or whatever but it it might be as simple as saying thank you that was fast that was very efficient that was something to also make them be seen because they also yeah. are, feel not seen. Yeah. I mean, it's just about being kind and courteous, right? And what I love about what you're doing, you're bringing the humanity back into this profession, right? And that's why you were drawn to it. And that's why you were so passionate about it. And then you saw this gaping hole in migraine care. You understood the biological side of it, which a lot of people don't. And you saw how much that was lacking. And then you became educated in it and then just realized, wow, I want to educate other pharmacists in this because you realize, well, maybe I can only have an impact just right here. And then if I train more people can help even more and other people are reaching out to you now in other countries wanting to replicate this model. And it's really inspiring just to see the change that you're creating for all of us. It's, it's exciting. We had a masterclass that we're doing that is an international masterclass. So this is a group that I've connected the people in the Association of Migraine Disorders in the U.S., with a group in in Mm. Dubai that works with Middle East, North Africa, and the Far East region. And the last event that was just triggers was what are triggers? And then, you know, we had two, usually we have two speakers, one from a part of the world and one from that 
that side of the world and we bring them together to say this condition is universal and the way you treat it is universal. One of the very, very unique to migraine that it is the same symptoms wherever you are. The triggers are very similar. Like there's a lot of similarities than dissimilarities and regionality to this condition. So we had around a thousand healthcare professionals attend a session about triggers. When we talk triggers, I think on Migraine Body, they said there's something like 64,000 triggers reported. Wow. I attend events. Some physicians go like, that's not a trigger. And you go like, how would you know if something is a trigger or not a trigger? How would you know? And one of the weirdest that I read was white plates. If you eat out of a white plate, then... Someone mentioned that to me very recently. And even though it's strange, if they say it triggers, then it is a trigger. That's exactly what I think. I don't think anybody can tell you, no, it's not. Nobody can. Nobody has the right to tell you, no, it shouldn't trigger a migraine for you. And you educating other healthcare professionals to say a trigger is something that is very unique to the person. And the idea of avoid your triggers is not as empowering as let's look at ways to manage these triggers. Do not say avoid your trigger. If my trigger is the weather and you tell someone where avoid the weather, how can I avoid the weather? Impossible. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I love that you said thousand healthcare professionals attended it. That means things are shifting in migraine care. People do want to learn more about it and give better care because that also speaks to the number of people who are right now seeking help and seeing that there's not enough education about it in the medical system. Yeah. And some people tell you there's an increased percentage there's an increased risk of migraine there's more people getting migraine and you go like no we're talking about it more now like this was a condition that was described by ancient egyptians their remedy to that was in their you know drawings on the pyramids or whatever they would put a small amulet of a crocodile and they would put it in a small wrap around the head and they put it there to protect you from the pain of migraine. Mm. Like the really cool. I haven't tried that. <laughs> I'd like to try that. <laughs> I'm, I'm down to try anything. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> before I was diagnosed with chronic migraine, I never have guessed that like young people could be with living with migraine. Like I just never saw that, you know, I didn't see it in ads for migraine medicine. And I, it just wasn't something that I thought like, oh yeah, this could be it. Like I, you know, it, I can be young, I can be my 20. And I just didn't see that until I found like the online migraine community. And I found plenty of other people my age that had it and had had it since they were young. And I just feel like see yourself in that representation, but like we're all here. It's not like there was a surge of migraine patients. It's just like more people are talking about it. You're seeing us, but like we've been here. I absolutely agree. It is an invisible condition, right? You can't walk around saying, I have migraine. And the invisibility of this condition means that there needs to be a lot of advocacy that from totally. people living with migraine, because also the way it has been portrayed in the, in the media as if it's just a headache. And even worse than it just yeah. being a headache, it is a way to get out of things you don't want to do. So there's mm, a negative. So people living with migraine sometimes are too scared to say I have a headache because they don't want others to think that they're making up excuses. I live with undiagnosed yes. migraine for the majority of my life and I had chronic migraine. I would only take off work if I couldn't stop throwing up. And 
other than that, I was there. And even on those days, I felt like it was looked at like this person's taking off for a, a migraine attack. You know, I just didn't feel comfortable because I wasn't educated in migraine at the time. So I didn't feel empowered. And my colleagues that would take off regularly for migraine attacks were looked down upon. And I picked up on that very quickly. So mm. I think education and awareness are needed among people living with migraine as much Absolutely. as it is with healthcare professionals. Absolutely. And that's why, Shruti, you, you experienced this uh, firsthand, is that you need to understand yourself that this is something that you didn't do. Because that whole idea mm -hmm. of drink water, it means you're, you're doing this. It's something you mm -hmm. do. And mm -hmm. the other thing is, it, most women have it started with their period or with their menstruation. And that mm -hmm. means that we have also that sense of nobody needs to see this, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like it is part of your period, so you cannot keep on complaining. I am as guilty as anybody else of, you know, I was brought up to think it's like you, when you have it, you don't have to walk around and tell people you have your period. Kind mm. of. But there's also this uh, yeah. expectation that if you've lived with it for so long and if it happens so often, you should just be used to it. And I think for mm. me, that was the biggest factor. I didn't want to talk mm. about the extent to which it impacted me just because I had this conditioning that you should be used to it, right? It shouldn't be such a big deal that you should stop complaining about it. The people mm -hmm. I talk to, they explain to me that their family tells them, well, you know, we have this birthday or we have a wedding or whatever. And, you know, just try harder. When you try harder not to have an attack brings in brings on more anxiety around the attack and shame brings on shame as if you are ruining everybody else's time by having a condition that you have no control over sometimes i can be a little bit nasty and say well it's genetic you gave it to me as a family but that's not really the, that's not really the best attitude that is like <laughs> when someone tells me this i get angry for them and i'm like well, you should tell them. And then I go like, that's not the way to do it. Let's advocate. Let's educate. It's a fact. It's a, it's what, what we live with. And we need to start changing the way people see this, starting with mm -hmm. people living with migraine, starting by empowering them with knowledge and with the language, even the language, um, yes, the language I'm, I'm still learning. I am so passionate about migraine language. I used to be an English teacher, and I think migraine language is a big part of the reason why migraine disease is misrepresented. I agree. So the more we can educate people within the community and doctors, and even, you know, now that I'm in the States, I see advertisements for migraine medications all the time. I've only seen one medication commercial that uses the right language, and it just contributes to the stigma because... I just did a post on this the other day when we refer to a migraine attack as a migraine yeah, I mean, I, or migraines with an S, guilty. right? Then it implies that it's a singular event, that it's not a chronic condition that the brain is always navigating. And I'm guilty of it too. It's been ingrained for so long. I can't tell you how many times I remind my partner not to say that. And then he'll remind me when I, I'm having the worst migraine. You did it again, you know? And it's like a constant reminder because I can easily stop saying migraines with an S, but it's harder to break using the word migraine interchangeably for an attack. I totally agree. And I love it when I get called out. I love it. I mean, <laughs> I love it when someone tells me that's not what you're supposed to say. And I go, 
oh my god i'm so ignorant like this is so so true and and we need to call each other out and not be sensitive about it yeah i love it i was yeah. doing an event the other day with migraine canada and we had mm -hmm. an event that was around uh, sleep and the person one of the people said stop saying migraine it's like, shouldn't we be the people if you're doing the education i was like oh my god you're so right but mm -hmm. We also need to be a, a little bit more tolerant. Um, yeah, absolutely. And understanding, and understanding we're all learning that together. I've been all totally. my life saying this, and now I'm trying to mm -hmm. remember. And totally. exactly. when you're doing a live like this, it doesn't mean that your brain is, like you're thinking of too many things as well. But mm -hmm. I love it. Right. I love it that she called me out, and I was so thankful to that person. <laughs> We're, I'm the one who tells people, don't say migraines. Do not say migraines. Migraine yeah. is a condition. And when I talk to <laughs> pharmacists, they send me emails, right? Like, I would like to learn more about migraines. I, I have a patient with migraines or who gets migraines. And I'm like, migraine attacks. Migraine is a condition. Yeah. We do not say epilepsies. Yeah. We say epilepsy. <laughs> For people listening, migraine is a neurobiological condition that impacts the brain all the time, and it causes attacks to occur. <laughs> exactly, or migraine headaches, Thank you. or migraine symptoms, or whatever. But we're, I'm as guilty, yeah. and I apologize if you heard me um, saying something that's not right. Correct me, because you are doing you're doing me a favor. You're making it easier for me to communicate more efficiently and. And if someone gets put off by the language I use, that's the last thing I, I want. I would like to be able to talk in a language that is, number one, uh, understandable, so people can understand what I'm saying, but also that is uh, appropriate for the condition and that is taking into consideration how people feel about this condition. And Yeah, I think it's so beautiful, especially because so many people living with migraine don't even understand that because... Mm -hmm. the migraine education aspect of it. So even just someone trying to change their language so it's more representative of what we're actually facing, it just is so supportive and so encouraging to all of us. Call me out. <laughs> <laughs> Call us out too. <laughs> Absolutely. Going back to what you said about, you know, education being important for people who live with migraine and what Bernadette said that, you know, not having that awareness and education tends to make us a little more hard on ourselves. And that leads to chronification. Carmen Rose, if I'm right, you didn't know that brain trauma causes, post-concussion causes migraine attacks, and it could be chronic if you didn't seek out help earlier. So it's quite important to know that education plays a major role in learning how to prevent your attacks or preventing your attacks from becoming chronic. So on this topic, can you explain why prevention is so important and why medication when it comes to preventive or, or abortive can be a key aspect of migraine treatment? There's, there's a few things that you've, you've, you've said here that I would like to go back to. Number one, um, migraine can be something that you've had and gets worse with a traumatic brain injury. So you would have symptoms before and the traumatic brain injury makes it worse. It is possible for a migraine to occur after a traumatic brain injury and become secondary to that injury. We know that the first the treatment post-TBI 
has is so mm-hmm. co- I, like I still don't know what we're supposed to do. Are we supposed to move or are we supposed to to be like? I'm still every time. That's everything I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? Like, if I'm going to give you advice and you you've just had a, a TBI or you've had a concussion, post concussion, I never get patients come to the pharmacy post concussion and say, "What do I do?" Right? But then they tell me months later, well, like, yeah, but since then I don't sleep as well. I have my anxiety mm-hmm. is higher. I now have headaches. I'm going to say a very personal uh, thing and I'm, I'm, I'm very ashamed of myself, but it's okay. My son had concussions uh, earlier when he was younger. And years ago, he once had a, a, an episode that I did at the, at, at the time think it's migraine because he had severe photophobia. He was nauseous. He was, he was in his room. He stayed in his room for two days with what I think is migraine now. I thought it was an, a single episode. I thought that it was only something that he had because, you know, he had, he, he was in an accident and he had a concussion right. and that's normal to have these things. My son, this is, this was possibly 10 years ago, maybe less, maybe eight years ago. My son until today has photophobia. He always says that his tummy is hurting. And today I think it was post TBI and we have not been taking good care of it. He doesn't complain of headache as much as he has sleep disturbances, photophobia, and the tummy. For me now, when I think of it, I think, okay, that's post-traumatic brain injury. And I, I blame myself. I was like, well, he did have a headache within seven days. That was really the worst headache of his life. That was a migraine headache. Is it possible that this is mm. what we're going through now? Nobody has ever suggested it. Nobody has ever told us that this is possible. So is it is it migraine? Is it is it post-traumatic brain injury? We know so little about traumatic brain injury. Right. And we know very yeah. little about what we need to do. We we I don't know. Mm-hmm. Did I, I keep on thinking, should we have done something else? Should I have done anything? He saw a neurologist, he saw a psychiatrist, he saw everybody. A private hospital. Yeah. Uh, the more people who saw him, the better it is for them. So we saw everybody at the time and nobody wow. suggested that this is possibly, uh, you know, that there will be, nobody even warned us that there will be something that is so long, but it was more than one. So it wasn't just one right. traumatic brain. It's like there were first one and we had another one. And then right. now yep. we do not know what the main complaint is more than the quality of life has changed that there is Mm. definitely symptoms that he's getting, not diagnosed with migraine, not diagnosed. Sleep disorders are something Mm -hmm. that is very common. And we know there are triggers and we know there's a link. Thank you for sharing, you know, being vulnerable and sharing that story with us. Um, And just, I hope you're not too hard on yourself because you, it sounds like, you know, you're doing the best with what you had at the time, right? With the information, the education you had. And just want to let you know that like me, I had my all my concussions like four years ago and it still is the same story. So whether it was 10 years ago or even just four years ago, I had two concussions back to back. And then I realized that I had post-concussion. They kept saying, oh, it, everything will come back. It'll be fine. And then eventually I remember like six months out, I just Googled like 
what, what does it mean if your concussion symptoms don't go away? And then I saw post-concussion syndrome. And so then I was like, okay, that must be it. And then it wasn't until two years later that I got the chronic migraine di diagnosis. And I didn't, even, I didn't even know I was going in for that. Traumatic brain injury is one of these conditions that recently I've started to be interested in because when I was working with people living with migraine, I was still working with them as migraine not post-traumatic brain injury. And that has mm -hmm. other conditions associated with it. What in an ideal world I would like to do, and that is to look at you as a person, not as right. the condition, and see right. what is going on there and how can I support you and how can we work together? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes there's this lack of support that is most frustrating. So even if I don't give totally. you an answer, me brainstorming with you and thinking with you, okay, this is what we need to do. Let's see, you go back to your doctor, ask them, what do they think? Mm. Um, I did tell you last time that the more people I worked with, the more I realized I don't know enough. I, I still mm. don't know enough to help you to the best of what is available out there. And that's why I went back to school. So I'm doing a master's in mm. headache disorders. And guess what? I was only talking migraine. We're talking about 200 headache disorders recorded and reported wow. today. And we are excluding a lot of these people because we don't know what to do. Like mm -hmm. we talk about right. chronic migraine, but we do not talk uh, about chronic tension type headache, right? Mm. People who have tension type headache, we don't think it is as serious as people living with migraine, but we're doing what was done to people living with migraine by dismissing this mm. condition as not as important. Mm -hmm. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. And, ju and just right? to tap in there, like actually head pain isn't something I always experience with migraine attacks, but I can tell you right. my worst migraine attack because I have a lot of referred pain, right? That travels literally all the way down the right side of my body. But my worst attacks are with the head pain. And the fact that mm -hmm. that doesn't get as much attention, I mean, it's excruciating when you have head pain. People who live through migraine think that everybody who gets their period actually gets a headache. I did too. Yeah. No, I, that's what I thought too. I was like, I wake up with a little head pain. And then, you know, when I get my period, it's just part of my period. Like I just get, it's worse when I get my period. Yeah. That's what I thought too. Exactly. And like, no, it's, that's all connected. That's, that's all, all one that's thing. All, that's why you need education. That's like, like cannot exactly. have enough education. Having her period and she gets the headache with it. She's so overcome by all she needs to do right they right. they have to worry about leaking they have to worry about right. you know the clamping they have to like can you imagine trauma that we go through when we mm -hmm. have to deal with this every month and there are months where mm -hmm. there's a lot of pain there are months that are okay and then you start to think okay what did i do different because i, I that's that's a good month or you know mm -hmm. two days delay and you go like oh what did i do there's always this mm. sense of blame around our yeah. menstruation that you go like, it's again, it's cultural, it's the media, it's mm -hmm. people around us yeah. in schools. It's this shame associated with it. Yeah. What's interesting about it is I became chronic with the introduction of my menstruation and I would always have a severe attack for like seven to 10 days every time I had my period. And when I finally started tracking it when I was older, I realized, oh, I also get a very intense one for three to four days when I ovulate. And I think what's so interesting about it is as a woman, you end up like disconnecting from 
that part of you. And that's also really sad because it is a beautiful part of life. And to then feel like you don't want any part of it, that's a challenging thing to cope with and to think about, you know. Oh, that's beautiful, B. I, I really think that we need to start celebrating it. And yeah, I agree. And, uh, again, there's this sense of no, you don't talk about it. You don't talk about don't it. Talk yeah. About like, don't tell anybody you're on your period. You know, don't make sure they don't notice. Don't like, you know, like you walk, you put your tampon, like hide it. So no one sees it. Like oh, when you, oh, I don't know if you remember, but if you had to, to hand to someone in class. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like through sleep, like, like God forbid somebody sees that you're passing, you know, we're all going through it. (laughs) Yeah. Explosives. Oh my God. Now that I'm an advocate and and share, you know, what we're going through, I I do share about it. And every time I do, I'm like, Ooh, (laughs) yeah, you gotta like unpack it. It's like its own internalized ableism. It's like this period stigma. That's like, it feels not right to talk about, but it's like a natural part of our lives, you know? Going back, could you just explain why prevention is that important? Why abortive medication is also as important? For an abortive to be effective, it needs to work two out of three attacks. For you to say that my abortive Mm. works. When we had triptans, maybe in the late 90s or something like that, they were seen as like magic. Anybody who has migraine is going to get relief. Now we know that only two thirds of people get relief, one third don't. In the definition, I think at one point they were saying can be relieved by a triptan. So if you give them a triptan, it will go away. That is not no longer in the criteria for diagnosis. And that is because they found out two out of three people who live with migraine can get right. um, a relief with triptan. So number one, there is failure of abortives. So it means that there's a big chance that you take a a, a medication to abort an attack. It doesn't work. You repeat it. It doesn't work. Or it works, but then it recurs again. Isn't it possible for a triptan to work and then stop working? In some of my patients, they definitely say that, you know, I've been taking it for years and now it doesn't work anymore. I'm not sure if it's because the migraine itself has changed, has chronified Mm, as well, okay, or because you know, mm-hmm. your the receptors get used to it. Um, th- since there mm-hmm. is a chance that the chronification does happen with use, there's a possibility that there's also kind of your, your receptors get desensitized. I'm not sure of the answer right. to this, but the idea is if you are needing more and more abortive, it means you're getting more and more attacks. And that is not normal. That is not something that you also need to live with. And that's why we need a preventive. So a preventive mm-hmm. is, is a medication that you can take um, every day or once a month or whatever, because we have now different ones or every three months. And it is going to ensure that you have less attacks so that you do not need as much abortives or that abortives work better. So that's the idea. If you have an abort, if you have a medication that stopped working, the, the chances are if you do have a preventive that works well for you, it will work again or mm-hmm. it will work better. So if, it, if you needed a second dose, then the one dose would be enough for you. Now, remember until a few years ago, all the preventives we had were not designed for people living with migraine. They were medications yeah. that were for seizure. And mm-hmm. I always have the, the question from my, my patient saying, mm. I'm not going to take a medication that 
is used for seizures. I don't have seizures. And mm-hmm. the, the clinical answer, the scientific answer is that there are pathways that are similar between epilepsy and migraine, meaning right. these medications, they don't know the condition they're treating. They are working on receptors that are common oh, okay. in both conditions. So that's why I right. see very good results with something like topiramate. Very good results. Mm-hmm. It works very well. We know that some of the medications that can be used to break a bad headache in, um, in the emergency room are actually anti-seizure medications that they give them and then it, right. it does work. Huh. Not to say that when you get the medication, you also get the side effects. So that they get the effect, you also get the side effects. Yeah. So some of these side effects, some people can tolerate, some people cannot, similar to people living with epilepsy. Yep. So a lot of these preventives we had so far were seen to work by coincidence. So someone would be given a blood pressure <laughs> medication and their headache would go away. And then they would go back, right. report it to the doctor. The doctor tells the company, the company goes like, oh, let's see if we can do a clinical trial. Oh, it's like Botox. I feel like that's how Pretty they much, found Botox. Yeah. Exactly. That's how they found yeah. like all the migraine meds until they started developing them this, for us. The CDRP <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. When- yeah. I mean, I remember I had to fail, like for my insurance, I had to fail two uh, medications that were lower cost, like a lower tier before I could get onto the CGRP blockers. We are told you have to fail two medications. Why do you have to fail? It's the medication that fails, not you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank Thank you. you. I don't fail medication. The medication failed me. It didn't work. Do anything wrong? I just took it every day. That's That's again the language around even coverage. You have to fail too. No. And then they call them standards of care. These standards of care was because we didn't have anything. And mm-hmm. I'm going to make it mm-hmm. even more interesting for us to discuss. So did you know that all the clinical trials that were done around migraine, the subjects needed to be male? I was gonna say they're male. Yeah. Oh, come on. Why? That was I didn't know that. Because when they recruited, it needed to be a male, I think 20 to 40 and healthy. Don't but have still, any but, other but still, it's pre- predominantly uh, known as the disease that affects women. So that was right. recently. So they have changed these criteria because people were like shocked to hear that the mice had to be male mice when they did animal studies. That is stupid. And, and you would they go, don't, uh, So that explains why the hormonal component was ignored for such a long time. And that's why the failure rate oh, is so shit. high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why <laughs> a lot of these medications, you have to try three and four to find one that actually mm-hmm. works because it's not designed. I still haven't work. found one. <laughs> and, and take you back again to the idea of why do they start with something mm-hmm. else and then go for that? Yes, cost is a thing. Right. But also, if you look at the new medications, even the new ones, we haven't found that big breakthrough Mm -hmm. where it works for everybody. So CGRP is one of these mediators that do trigger a migraine. But Mm -hmm. there are new ones that are now being discovered that actually are more able to trigger a migraine, which means if we find something to counteract them, we will be helping Mm -hmm. more people. So Mm -hmm. the the old ones that we were talking about, the anti-seizure medications, they have success rates similar to the CGRP antibodies, but they have Mm -hmm. bad side effects. But again, not everybody gets the side effects. So I don't want us to say, well, 
no, you can only try CGRPs because there are so many pathways. I was just wanting yeah. to know your perspective because obviously some people, um, they do try these off-label meds and that is what helps them. So just your perspective on navigating, being open, like, because me, I've tried CGRP meds and, and they haven't worked. The only thing that's really helped me so far as like a band-aid is Botox. So like looking and searching and hoping that one of these new meds might be the one that helps me or mm. someone else. I think that we need to try as many as we can tolerate and mm. until we mm. find the one. There's only one you. Yeah. There's mm. not a hundred of you that have tried these hundred things and found the right one. And I think the way to look at finding the right preventive for you is to think of yourself as a one person clinical trial. You're only one <laughs> person that is going to try, that is going to be patient, and that's going to be very, very kind to yourself. That you do not fail. You do not. We need to remind ourselves. It's not like I didn't respond to this medication. It's this medication was not the right one for me. And I need to mm -hmm. find the right one. And it's a quest. And it's something that we need to be very, very patient and yeah. very forgiving and find the support system because you mm -hmm. also need you need that village around you to tell you what's out there i have a patient that has been living with migraine for 35 years and she's reached the point of of horrible migraine attacks and she has already gone through everything on my list she told me that she did have a response to something that was off-label. So we were like, okay, why don't we try something similar that is also off-label and see how that works. It didn't take away her migraine, but it made it tolerable for her. So yeah. that's the second thing. So be kind, be patient. That's two. Then the third one would be also take whatever small win you get. Exactly. I completely right. agree. Don't wake up and think, I need to be 100%. Like, no. That e each and every win is your win, is yours. Yeah. Yours alone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Migraine can spiral out of control, but it can also spiral in the in the right way. So if you have one thing that's even improving you just a little bit, it's a step in the right direction and, and keep going. Exactly. And it might give you the energy to find the next best thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's what happened with this patient of mine. Like the wait time in Canada to see a, a specialist is 18 months to 24 months. What is she supposed to do in the meanwhile? What she was doing so far was sitting home and not leaving. Everybody, everything was delivered to her. She never left her house. She only went to doctor's appointments. That's the only thing she did. I've, I've been there. <laughs> right? So if, been there. if you're able to get something that helps you take a walk, open your door exactly. and take a walk, that's a mm. win. That's something that I, I would look 100%. for. And I would try and I would, try, and, and I would be very patient until I it because then mm. after that i would be able to find the next best thing it's small steps to reach that holy grail of finding that magical you know medication that's gonna work and some people have found them like super responders on on cgrp antibodies they say they can't believe how it mm. feels and sometimes it's kind of unsettling to see how the other people lived I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very interesting concept also to think of, that if you live with this condition all your life and you wake up one day and you're free, 
this is how the other side lives. <laughs> exactly. Oh and gosh. makes you think, oh, what would have happened if I had had this all along? What would have changed? Right. It, it's, a, it's a little bit of an existential <laughs> question. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I read in your bio about your traveling, you know, the Middle East, Africa, and other Far East regions. Could you tell us about the differences you noticed in migraine care, maybe even just the culture around it, just any sort of differences you notice while traveling? I'm um, originally from the Middle East. I grew up in, uh, born and raised in the Middle East in Jordan. And uh, I, that's mm -hmm. where I went to the pharmacy school. Then I moved to Dubai. And Jordan was very well known for very good health facilities, like really mm. advanced. There was a lot of investment in healthcare and people from all around the region would come because we had the best doctors. So there was always a focus on excellence in healthcare when I was growing up. Moved to Dubai. Interestingly enough, that's when I started working with migraine. So that meant that I was having a first-hand experience with migraine care in all the regions or all the countries I worked with. So I worked in Cyprus, I worked in UAE, I worked in Jordan, Lebanon, Iran, Yemen, like all these countries. Wow. And again, the general idea there is that the condition exists everywhere. The common thing amongst this as well is that it is dismissed as well everywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That people go like, oh, it's not a big deal. Unless it's someone who's ending up in the emergency room. And the higher your socioeconomic status in these countries, the better care mm -hmm. you get and the better access to medications because you can travel and see the best doctor whatever, wherever and that's something people do there until recently there was no real distinction between a neurologist and a headache doctor if you go to a neurologist with a headache they do the scans they make sure it's not a tumor it's not a clot or whatever and once they clear you then you become less of a priority uh, in a neurologist's office and that is because of the nature of their conditions. Like they get strokes all the time. It's You can imagine being a neurologist and then someone comes, it's a headache. Oh, let's make sure it's not this. It's not this. Okay, good. They like go and, and take something. You're not on their emergency list. They, it's just stress. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's possible also that they do not see this as uh, emergent. It's because mm -hmm. it's not life-threatening. Exactly. I, yeah. I need to focus on life-threatening. Exactly. And, and they do get a lot of life-threatening conditions. Mm -hmm. right? It's not like they're just dismissing this condition. And that's why we needed a headache specialist. Someone to focus on headache. Number one, make sure that it's not life-threatening, that it's not something or something that can be improved with an intervention. Like identify that intervention. As I said, 200 kinds of headaches, not all of them are migraine. Migraine can also evolve and go into something else. So someone could live with migraine all their life. We're more at risk. People living with migraine are more at risk of strokes. So mm -hmm. you do need that continuation of care with someone who understands, who's able to work with you and focus on your headache instead of trying to always look for the emergency in there. Around the world, there's common experience among people living with migraine. They don't always get the care they need. And there's also the education part of healthcare providers. There's not enough time spent on headaches unless to identify those that are sinister. These are the headaches that can kill you and finding them exciting. I was talking to someone and saying, well, a headache specialist, and one of the doctors told me, oh, that would be boring. You'd be just seeing the same over and over and over. So also, he says, oh, you need a certain personality. And I'm like, I don't like the sound of this.
what is that personality? You're saying that it's boring. So among the profession itself, there's not a lot of enthusiasm. If you're a brain surgeon, you're a superhero. But if you're a <laughs> headache doctor, what are you among your colleagues? That, you know what I mean? There's a status that we need to also change that. We need to create enthusiasm to create that culture around taking care of migraine. You can actually help a lot of people. And we don't have this now. And we're so thankful that you have dedicated your career to creating this enthusiasm for migraine. We know you're currently pursuing a master's of science headache degree at the University of Copenhagen. And we're wondering if you could share with our listeners why you chose that program and why Denmark's approach to migraine treatment and care is so successful. As I said, when I started working with people living with migraine, the more I did, the more I realized that I don't know enough that I need to know more. And then I, I started looking at how can I improve my knowledge. And I started looking at the fellowship programs that are done for doctors and they do not accept pharmacists. So the American Headache Society, the American Migraine Foundation, all of these, they do have programs, but they do not, they're not designed for pharmacists. I did send them messages. I sent emails saying, I am specializing, I have the knowledge, I want to improve and I want to learn more. And I never got any answer. So I started looking at, okay, what are people around the world doing? Maybe three programs worldwide, two that were totally made. The first one was actually a general pain that does have headache in there. And the second one was the headache programs at the University of Copenhagen. It was not open to pharmacists, but I sent them an email explaining what I do and saying that I know I'm not a doctor, but I do migraine care. And I think we need to integrate pharmacists into this. And I yeah. showed them the work that I'm doing. And interestingly enough, they changed the criteria and they said, okay, mm. a pharmacist can come in. They listened. So to, for me, that was a really mm -hmm. good sign that they're the yeah. right place for me. They said, yeah, that's okay. We would love to have you uh, explain to me that they changed the criteria. They think that this is really a step in the right direction. In Denmark, they do involve pharmacists. They do a lot of education to pharmacists and they feel that there's much, much more that pharmacists can do. And they're happy to see how this experiment with me. So I'm the experiment. <laughs> I'm sure they were equally excited because they believe in the same approach that you do. So right. that's amazing bring us experts from around the world, but they also have people come from the headache center to talk to us about what they're doing. It's all case-based. I love it because they say, so now what would you tell the patient? Not only what is the diagnosis, what is the treatment? There's specific sections with how are you going to explain to your patient what a CGRP is language, but the language around migraine, the, 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 the ethics of hope, you know, that you cannot tell them there's nothing left. You cannot. You will wow. need to work with them. You will need to empower them. You will need to, to try and find something that will help them. And, you know, there's medication overuse headache. Just recently, they've changed it to medication adaptation headache. Change, change the language because the language was more blaming. And when I said, what do you think of the change of name? And they were like, look, we need to address the issue, not change the name. It's not about changing mm. the name. It's about how do you fix this? This is done because people are not getting proper management of their migraine. So they are in pain. You tell them you are overusing. That's not the issue. It's not what the language mm. is. It's the action that you need to take around this. And I love, mm. I love the sentiment around this position. It doesn't matter whose mistake it is. Fix it. 
fix it and then we'll talk mm. about it <laughs> they were telling me that you're living with medication overuse headache they have detox beds in the center itself they have six beds that you can go wow. and they will the government will pay the cost of you going by the time you leave you are not in medication overuse headache because of how painful it is to get off that these mm-hmm. oh. it's a detox kind of approach to medication overuse headache but they told me nobody uses them anymore nobody they say we have them that cover they're at no charge to you you can come and the six beds you mean yeah these beds nobody comes mm-hmm. and uses these beds because, because they have right. perfected the idea mm-hmm. that treatment mm-hmm. or the management of finding the right prevention for them and supporting mm-hmm. them while wow. they're outside the hospital they don't need to actually hospitalize people or get them Amazing. patient to manage the medication overuse headache and, and it sounds like it's also their commitment to education right because they're educating their patients about right. migraine and the medications they're using while right. compared to other places in the world we're just sent on our way right. without any instructions or help and that's what they said mm-hmm. they said the best thing they've done to manage medication overuse headache is awareness and they said yeah. they have done mm-hmm. awareness campaigns in the community they have done awareness campaigns in pharmacies they have done awareness campaigns in gp offices and it's nationwide everybody in the Amazing. nation now is aware that taking too much abortive is actually going to put you into a cycle of possibly you will go into chronicity if you continue to mm-hmm. use these medications and they said that that was the best intervention they said it's mm. not only finding the right one but to tell people that there is there is more that you can you can do and that is you know the awareness that is in the community so this is like i'm That's very awesome. excited about this um about this education because i feel it is very relevant and it's something that mm-hmm. i can actually apply in helping people living with migraine That's amazing. There's so many aha moments over here and I'm sure our listeners will be happy to listen to this episode and take all the information just like how we did. And I'm always thankful and grateful to be invited and to talk to you and and share ideas. I think I I learn as well. I learn more about your journey and that is very important. Um for all of us because mm-hmm. each and every journey is different um i've never seen two people living with migraine with the same story mm-hmm. each and every person is different and each and every person has a different experience and i'm i'm again grateful and and thank you very much mm-hmm. for having me on your show Wow, so many aha moments. I'm sure our listeners will be really happy to consider using their pharmacist as an additional tool in their migraine toolkit or if they're in Canada, they now have this fabulous resource that they can reach out to whenever they need. We'd like to thank our guest today, Heba Hani, a pharmacist and the founder of the Migraine Pharmacist. Thank you so much for being with us. We absolutely adored our conversation with you and we cannot wait to have you back on. I know we all learned a lot today. This gives us so much hope when it comes to access to migraine care and that's the most important piece of the puzzle just having someone validate and having someone help you find care when all things fail. I wonder if everyone will drive out this very moment to meet their pharmacist and see how they can help. Uh we really appreciate your time. Thank you everyone for joining us on this episode. Until next time, this is Carmen Rose. Bernadette and Shruti on visibility. Mm-hmm.